Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 6, Episode 10, The Splendor of the Song Dynasty. As we discussed last season, the fall of the Tong Dynasty was not a sudden, earth-shattering event in itself, but the result of a long, gradual process of regional power outstripping central power. When the final emperor of the Tong Dynasty was dethroned and then assassinated, most of China had already balkanized into one of many kingdoms ruled by one of many dynasties, seeking to dominate what remained of the Tong Empire. The period that followed is called the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period, but don't let the name fool you. There were far more than five dynasties between the years 907 and 979. It was later court historians who coined the name, and we still use that name regardless of how many were laying claim to the title of dynasty. Generally, the title of dynasty was reserved for those polities that took control in northern China, especially of the city of Dongjing, and the title of kingdom was applied to the powers throughout southern China whether or not they declared themselves as dynasties. While this episode will broadly survey the events that shaped the Song dynasty, they were not by any means the only Chinese dynasty of their day. The far reaches of northern China remained beyond their reach, and we will look more closely at the dynasties that ruled the far north in the next episode as they deserve their own space. In 907, the Tang dynasty received the final nail in its dynastic coffin when military governor Zhu Wen forced the abdication of Emperor Ai of Tang, and then arranged his assassination. Shortly after the abdication, Zhu Wen established himself as the leader of a new dynasty, which he dubbed the Liang Dynasty. It's commonly referred to as the later Liang Dynasty or the Zhu Liang Dynasty, to avoid confusion with the original Liang Dynasty, which ruled parts of China in the 500s. While the later Liang Dynasty directly replaced the Tang Dynasty, many regional military leaders had already formed their own would-be successor dynasties by this point. The later Liang occupied central China, surrounded by many hostile states bent on national domination. This was all complicated by the unification of the northern nomads under the Khitan people, whose frequent raids into northern China now transformed into large-scale invasions of conquests. In the south there lay the Ten Kingdoms, many of which named their monarchs as emperors and claimed they were founding dynasties, but didn't count as such according to later Song court historians. The doctrine of the Mandate of Heaven nearly underwent revision during this period, as it became occasionally necessary for emperors to recognize one another diplomatically, albeit temporarily, in order to make peace or arrange trade which would allow them to fill their depleted coffers through taxes. The original Mandate of Heaven argued that all of China is meant to be ruled by a single Son of Heaven, and for two or more who claimed the title to actually work together was later considered disqualifying for the dynasties in question. In the early part of the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period, the later Liang were ascendant, and founder Zhu Wen styled himself Emperor Taizu. Taizu was used by the founders of most Chinese dynasties, which is why that name seems to come up so often. 
He was not the first, and he will certainly not be the last Emperor Taizu. The state of later Liang held one extremely important asset which would pass through many hands during this tumultuous time, the city of Dongjing, which is today called Kaifeng. While that city would have many names throughout Chinese history, I will be sticking with Kaifeng for simplicity's sake. In addition to being both populous and prosperous, Kaifeng was a wellspring of cultural achievements which made it a lovely jewel for anyone's crown. In spite of any early gains in the wars against their neighbors, the later Liang dynasty was not above the usual intrigues that plague otherwise stable dynasties. The founding emperor became, according to later sources, increasingly hedonistic and even seduced the wives of his sons while they were away from the capital on state business. In 912, just five years after the dynasty's official founding, Emperor Taizu was assassinated by his son, who was soon after assassinated by a brother once his role in the original regicide became known. Taizu's second son moved the capital to Kaifeng, which would serve as the capital of many dynasties thereafter. The third emperor of the later Liang dynasty may have actually had a chance at conquering some of its neighbors using fairly sound strategies, but when a general defected to the Jin dynasty to their north, the end came fairly swiftly. In 923, the last emperor of the later Liang dynasty, Zhu Yuzhen, ordered a loyal general to kill him as the Jin state army toppled their national defense and marched toward Kaifeng. The general did as he was ordered, then committed suicide. The Jin state now seemed poised to make a play for domination, and its prince Li Kungshu declared the birth of a new dynasty, sort of. We know it as the latter Tang dynasty today, but at the time the emperor Li Kungshu declared his new dynasty the restored Tang dynasty, making a subtle attempt to claim the mandate of heaven by utilizing branding. He is remembered as, can anyone guess? That's right. Emperor Taizu. The later Tang dynasty was not long for this world, and went through four emperors in the span of 13 years. Interestingly enough, three of these four emperors were not Han Chinese at all, but boasted an ethnic heritage from a nomadic group called the Shatuo, a Turkic group who controlled portions of northern China. The fourth emperor of the restored Tang dynasty was betrayed by his son-in-law, himself a Shatuo Turk who called upon the help of Liao dynasty troops to storm the capital of Luoyang, an assault which turned out quite successfully. The later Tang dynasty managed to snatch up more territory in the north and expand the borders of its predecessor, the later Liang dynasty. In 937, the later Tang were overthrown by a dynasty we now call the later Jin dynasty, which had elements of both traditional Chinese bureaucratic power structures, along with some adoptions from the Shatuo, its emperor's ethnic group. It lasted through two emperors over 11 years and was especially notable for giving a region known as the 16 prefectures over to the Kitan Liao dynasty, for whom the later Jin dynasty was essentially a puppet state. The 16 prefectures was an important strategic region from which much of northern China could be controlled. Giving it to the Liao dynasty, an illegitimate dictatorship of barbarians from the typical Chinese point of view, was looked upon as a betrayal by most of the later Jin's subjects. 
to try and counteract the popular and frankly correct perception that the later Jin dynasty was just a puppet state of the Khitans, its second emperor, Shi Chonggui, in 942, sent a letter to the Liao dynasty informing them that he had assumed the throne and addressing Emperor Taizong of Liao as an equal. The Liao responded through repeated invasions until 946 when the later Jin dynasty was utterly crushed and ruined and Emperor Qi Shonggui forced into exile. In its place, the Liao sponsored the later Han dynasty, founded by Shatuo generals who claimed to have descended from the emperors of the ancient Han dynasty. Their founder died shortly after creating the dynasty, and only one other emperor ruled under the Han name until, in 951, four years after its inception, the later Han dynasty was overthrown. So, now who's in charge? A military administrator of Han Chinese background named Guo Wei overthrew the teenage emperor of the later Han and founded the later Zhou dynasty. For those keeping track at home, yes, the later dynasties seemed to be moving backwards through history. Tang, then Han, and now Zhou. I promise we were almost done. The later Zhou sought to reassert Han Chinese hegemony throughout the north and embarked on a series of expansionist assaults and managed to annex some territory from its neighbors. In 960, after going through two adult emperors until elevating a seven-year-old into the job, a general named Zhao Kuangyin brought his army into the capital, which had become Kaifeng once more, and was made the new emperor with almost no resistance whatsoever. The story goes that his army pushed him into this usurpation, but it seems likely that he played a more active role than the sources claim. While I think it would have been amusing if Zhao Kuangying had followed the trend and named his new ruling house the Restored Shang Dynasty, or even the later Xia Dynasty, he appears to have been slightly more forward-looking. His ruling house would be called the Great Song Dynasty, and it would turn out to be great in more than just name. First on the list of priorities for Emperor <sighs> Taizu of Song was military reform. As you may have noticed, a powerful military leader dethroning an emperor and declaring a new dynasty in his own name was kind of a trend during this period of Chinese history. So to prevent the future usurpation of himself or his imperial descendants, the emperor invited all of the strongest military leaders in his realm to join him in a banquet celebrating his coronation. He gave a speech at this banquet in which he attempted to persuade these men of the sword to retire. And it worked. In exchange for generous retirement packages, each of the former generals settled in their lavish homes, and the Song Emperor was able to bring about some much-needed military reform. His most significant contribution to the army was redistributing the powers of the newly appointed military leaders throughout the Song realm to keep any one of them from gaining enough power to accomplish a coup. He also expanded access to higher education throughout the nation by founding universities and transformed the bureaucracy to favor candidates who took the civil service exam over those who possessed impressive pedigrees. These universities were not merely imperial propaganda outlets in disguise, but were permitted a high degree of freedom of thought and encouraged curiosity beyond just prepping pupils for the big test. 
The Song Dynasty's scholastic policies would, in time, create what some historians refer to as a renaissance in East Asia. Scientific discoveries abounded in nearly every field, and some fields even came into being during this time, including some of the earliest archaeology. These discoveries and advancements led to improvements across the board for the population of Song China, whose population ballooned to at least 80 million people, possibly over 100 million by the 1100s. While men from every social strata and background were welcome to attend these academies, women were unfortunately specifically excluded. Misogyny itself was not new to the Song dynasty, but it seems to have intensified during this time. Previous opportunities for women to become upwardly mobile, certain occupations for example, were now forbidden to them. The motivation behind this seems to have been a Confucian desire to encourage the growth of families by preventing women from improving their circumstances through almost every means except marriage. Religion under the Song dynasty also underwent a reawakening. In the relatively peaceful aftermath of the many wars of the previous hundred years or so, interest in Buddhism, Taoism, and even the ancient folk religions began to grow once more. Nestorian Christianity was probably also still around, though its numbers would never recover from the persecution they endured along with Buddhism in the mid-800s. Arab Muslims from Central Asia migrated to Song China throughout the 1000s and often served as auxiliaries in the Song army. From Persia came groups of people still practicing the nearly extinct religion of Manichaeism. Also from Persia came a population of Mizrahi Jews who emigrated to Kaifeng, and there is still a group of Jewish people in Kaifeng today who claim to descend from those who came a thousand years ago. The Song chose for their capital the city of Kaifeng. This populous city, which was already fairly strong economically, absolutely exploded with activity thanks to the dynasty's emphasis on trade. You may recall that many of the cities in southern China had become trading powerhouses during the later period of the Tang Dynasty after they had been cut off from the Silk Road. If the Song Dynasty could find a way to regain control of southern China and enforce those same economic policies on those already thriving cities, they stood a chance at ruling over a united, prosperous China. So, that's what they did. Emperor Taizu focused his military exploits first on the southern powers, whose armies had been decimated by decades of fighting among themselves. The north was the real prize, especially the 16 prefectures which the Song dynasty claimed rightfully belonged under their rule. But, by first sweeping through the southern polities like the southern Han, the southern Tang, and the later Shu, he consolidated massive economic gains which could finance a northern campaign. Such a campaign was certain to be long, costly, and difficult. The first target was the Northern Han, composed of remnants of the later Han. The Northern Han was a close ally of the Khitan Liao dynasty, and was more or less a puppet state meant to serve as a buffer between the Liao and the Song. Emperor Taizu won some especially impressive victories against the Northern Han, and even besieged their capital, but retreated when the Liao sent an army to relieve their allies. His brother, who came to the throne as Emperor Taizong in 976, supported this effort and succeeded, 
besieging the capital and managing to drive a Liao Dynasty relief army away before accepting the Northern Han's surrender in 978. Throughout Chinese history, generally, the imperial throne has been passed from father to son when possible. Emperor Taizu had children, so how did his brother Emperor Taizong gain the inheritance? The answer is probably murder. Emperor Taizu died when he was 49 years old, fairly young for a Chinese emperor. Emperor Taizu's children also died mysteriously, one committing suicide when he fell out of favor with Emperor Taizong, and the other dying from a nondescript illness when he was just 22. Was it murder? This is a matter which Chinese historians are still debating today, because while these circumstances are certainly odd, there's still no real evidence that Emperor Taizong killed his brother and nephew. It seems that the new enlightened Song dynasty was not completely free from the intrigues that plagued its predecessors. The Song Empire gradually gobbled up the smaller states that surrounded it and now had control of an impressive trade network of prosperous cities with burgeoning merchant and artisan classes. In the 1000s, we see the emergence of the first restaurants in world history and the first published cookbooks. The printing industry boomed, especially during this time, as people had readier access to education and literacy spread to groups beyond dedicated scholars and nobility. Classics from Kung Fu Tzu, as well as histories, religious texts, and books of poetry were printed as quickly as their wooden printing plates could be carved. Some of the printers experimented with movable type, an invention of the famous engineer Bi Sheng, but the thousands of characters in written Chinese meant that it was usually faster to hire someone to carve a plate than arrange the characters needed for a reprinting of The Art of War or Analects. The first gunpowder weapons appear to have emerged during the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period, and the Song Dynasty was gradually augmented with rudimentary firelocks and even gunpowder grenades. Having gunpowder weaponry must have made the Song armies practically invincible on the battlefield in the 1000s and 1100s, right? In a word, no. While these weapons were effective at evoking fear in their enemies, bows and crossbows easily outranged them, and were far more accurate. As for the grenades, if you could manage to toss one into enemy ranks, it would be devastating, but these were fuse-lit weapons which, if dropped, would unleash their destructive devastation in your own ranks, rather than your enemies. The military is one area in which the Song Dynasty was actually hopelessly backwards. Large empires like ancient Rome, Byzantium, and the Tang all seem to have suffered from a similar enigma regarding their military. It needed to be strong enough to defend the empire and maybe even annex more land on occasion, but if it grew too large and its leaders became too powerful, the monarchy and the government itself could be threatened by an overthrow. The Liao dynasty of the north, led by the Khitan people, was a source of constant irritation and humiliation for the Song Empire. The 16 prefectures remained under Liao control, and several large-scale efforts to dislodge them ended in abject failure. The Khitan and their allies generally fought with large armies of horse archers, and those were hard for anyone to beat, but especially for the Song army, whose tactics were more suited to pitched-foot battles. Once more we see the classic tension between armies from nomadic groups and armies from agrarian societies. While nomadic armies were generally more often victorious, 
agrarian societies like Song China would usually win eventually thanks to their economic power. Now that the Khitan controlled a large area with its own agrarian cities, it had access to long-term resources as well, and this may have been what helped them hold out for so long against the Song. Eventually, the Song settled on sending regular tribute to the Liao dynasty to prevent any large-scale invasion of their dangerous northern rival. This was a humiliation, to be sure, and periodically newly enthroned emperors would stop sending payment as a sign of their strength, but after some saber-rattling by the Khitans, the gold, silk, ceramics, and other goods would start flowing north once again. While local foreign policy was often a matter of managing competing hostilities, an embassy from the late Roman Empire, probably better known to you as the Byzantine Empire, was received in 1081. It was sent by Emperor Michael VII Ducas and brought a gift of horses, saddles, blades, and pearls, which the Chinese understood as a tributary gift, but which was probably meant to be a reciprocal exchange. While the Liao were a fearsome rival whom the Song paid a significant tribute to keep at bay, the Khitan rulers of that dynasty were a minority faction among many other nomadic tribal groups whom they dominated through a mixture of intimidation and rewards. One such group, who tended to receive more intimidation than reward, were called the Jurchens. I mentioned them previously in Episode 3, The Age of Uncertainty, as they were the primary group among the pirates who pillaged northern Kyushu in 1019. The Khitans would occasionally send envoys into Jurchen territory to collect tribute, and it was already accustomed to supply honored visitors with young, unmarried peasant women for sex. At some point, this custom was transformed by the envoys, who demanded instead to be supplied with the nobles' wives for sexual pleasure. While this act of domination was probably intended to promote humiliation among the Jurchen, instead it served to galvanize their anger at Khitan dominance. In 1113, a Jurchen noble named Aguda became the chieftain of the Wanyan tribe when his brother died. Aguda's father had been growing the Wanyan tribe by recruiting warriors from other tribes, and they were now one of the more powerful and influential of the Jurchen groups. In the fall of 1114, Aguda made his move. He led around 2,500 troops and captured the city of Ningjiangzhou. When the local Liao militias counterattacked, his cavalry defeated them soundly, despite being outnumbered more than two to one. After this, all hell broke loose. The Khitans rallied their allies to crush the Jurchens, who continued winning impressive victories. The Song court became very interested in establishing relations with these enemies of their enemies, and when Aguda proclaimed the birth of a new dynasty, the Great Jin Dynasty, in early 1115, the Song dynasty formally recognized them and set about cementing an alliance while the Liao were still reeling from the Jurchen Rebellion. Emperor <sighs> Taizu of Jin was only too happy to agree, and their treaty specifically included the condition that the 16 provinces would be annexed into the Song domain when the war had concluded. The Jurchens, now unified under their emperor, proceeded to exact payback against the Liao dynasty with great vengeance and furious anger. We will more closely examine their battles in greater detail in the next episode. Now that their great enemy was occupied with a massive rebellion, the Song army stabbed northward into Liao territory. 
However, previous reforms aimed at reducing the size of the army also ensured its inferiority to its hostile northern neighbors. The standing army was augmented by militias and conscripts, and they faced the usual difficulties when fighting against enemies who were mostly mounted archers. Their Jurchen allies had to come to their rescue several times to prevent utter disaster, and on a few occasions the Song army failed to even show up at the prearranged time to participate in assaulting Liao cities. While the Jurchens still succeeded at the considerably impressive task of ousting the Liao dynasty from the east and driving them into Central Asia, the armies of the Song could hardly claim even partial credit. Thus, when it came time to actually hand over the 16 prefectures to the Song Empire, the Jin dynasty instead attacked their ally all throughout their northern territories, sacking cities and crushing Song resistance as they went. In the ensuing Jin-Song Wars, the political landscape of China would be changed once more, and a new status quo would arise in both the north and the south. Next time, we will more closely explore the northern dynasties of this period, the Liao and the Jin, and discuss the fate of their enemy, the Song Dynasty. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Have you ever longed to don the armor of a samurai and charge headlong into glorious battle? Well, I can't help you with that. However, I can offer you a themed t-shirt that will probably serve as a conversation starter with every third person or so. Check out the merch store at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com for exclusive shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, phone cases, and full-length battle-ready katanas. Just kidding about that last one. Again, I can't help you there. Visit ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com today.